0: years since I've done this, but this is a two-part message. I'm going to be looking at this chapter, so if you want to look at it this week, I'd encourage you to do so. John chapter 9, this is a continuation of our Steps series. Last time I was here, and I hope you had a good time last weekend. A uh, week prior to that, uh, we talked about uh, going the second mile, John, uh, or Matthew five forty-one. Today we're going to talk about the teaching steps in Israel. Um, What are the teaching steps? What are the southern steps? You read about this in the New Testament. The southern side of the temple had a huge, very wide, I'm not talking about two or three steps here, I'm talking about maybe 40, 50 yards wide, multiple steps that you would walk up to get into the temple courts. Uh, It's what they call the Hulda gates. And this is for your common man. This is how the common man would enter into the temple uh, after taking a ritual bath and cleansing oneself, you would then bring your sacrifice, you'd walk up two or three steps, stop, a priest would recite some scripture with you, you'd walk up a couple more steps, and, and you'd stop. And it's, it's called the ascension, and it prepares you to go worship. You know how important this is to me, I accentuate this all the time, making sure you're prepared to go to church, prepared to worship, prepared at the beginning of the service ascending the steps of the Lord. you who has clean hands and a pure heart. Those, that's what, how you prepare yourself. Well, these steps aren't to Jackson nor Macon County building code either. They're not all the same height. They're not all seven, seven and a half inches, whatever it is. Uh, they're, they're not uniform. And that's that way on purpose because it causes you to have to pay attention to how you're walking, how you're lifting your feet, and the point here is, as you approach God, you need to be mindful of how you approach him, not all the other things going on in your life, because he needs to be the sole focused, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. So you, how you approach and how you walk towards him is something the priest back in the day wanted you to pay attention to. How are you approaching God? Overly casual? No. With a reverence, with a respect, with uh, conviction, with the need for cleansing. That's the whole purpose. So that's what the Southern Steps are. Now, Jesus would find himself at the Southern Steps all the time. Uh, He would sometimes camp out on the Mount of Olives, come down through the Kidron Valley, he'd go to the steps, and about nine o'clock in the morning, he'd start teaching. I mean, all different kinds of subject over the course of the New Testament, he'd teach right there on those steps. This is probably where the Pentecost took place, where the Spirit of God baptized those believers And Peter baptized 3,000 people that day in those very ritual baths that are there at the temple. So Jesus had taught about the prodigal son, the two greatest commandments. He had just gotten done talking and bending down at those steps and riding in the dirt after the woman was caught in adultery in John chapter eight. And the people were livid with him. They They didn't want anything to do with him. They wanted him out of the picture. And as he's finishing up with that woman caught in adultery, he turns and he starts to teach John chapter nine. That's what we're looking at. Now, what makes Jesus a good teacher is uh, not primarily his outline, not his eloquence. Uh, in Mark 1 and 22, they listened to him, and the people listened to him often, and they started to think about it. What is it about him? I mean, they didn't know him but when they heard him speak, there was something unusual, something different, something out of the ordinary. His voice, was it just the volume of his voice? Was it the tone of his voice? No, there's more than that. They had heard so many people teach in the same way, the same inflection, because they all had taught each other to teach the same way. They were like, the Pharisees, the Sadducees were like copy machines. They would teach each other how to teach. They would do the same thing over and over it just got to be, you know, ceremonial. It was dry at some point in time. And, and, and so Jesus comes on the picture and the people said, they were amazed. This man taught as he had an authority. He, he had an authority that amazed him when he spoke and he taught unlike the teachers of the law. So, so th- for those of you who teach, maybe you have a small group facilitator, you teach Bible studies, whatever the case may be. Please pay attention. When you teach the word of God, you teach it differently than they had in that time were expected to hear it. And when you hear it taught differently, you know it. Now, you may not be able to fully articulate and explain it, but you know it's different. And that's one of the distinctives about Jesus. He could take the very same scripture and teach it, but teach it in a way that when they heard it, it was unlike the people they had heard teaching it forever. That's the first thing. Very distinctive and with authority and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, there may not be nothing new under the sun, but there is the word of God, when it's taught properly, is new to those who have never seen the revelation. The unfolding revelation of the word of God is an ongoing process. Your walk with Christ, my walk with Christ, necessitates over time an increasing depth If you're you're not having an increasing depth of your understanding of who God is, your experience of who God is, uh, a depth in his understanding of your devotedness and allegiance to him, uh, 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 an understanding of sensitivity to his voice, if there's not an ever-increasing depth, subtle as it may be, there isn't a trajectory of depth going on in your walk. If that's not the case, something's wrong. Either the person teaching you or you, or a combination of both. And that would include me. I have to teach in such a way that uh, I don't gravitate to the lowest common denominator of the newest person in the room who's ever been to church. I have a responsibility to you to teach you in such a way that increases the depth of your understanding, the depth of your insight, the depth of your love, the depth of your service, the depth of your life. And that's what a teacher who teaches the word of God has to take on themselves as responsibility. And this is why James chapter three, verse one says, these these people that want to be teachers, there's a big, big, big responsibility there. Know that. So the responsibility that Jesus took upon himself is he's got to take these disciples and these people, some of which didn't even know who he was, and he's got to take them from where they are to where he wants them to be one step at a time, but it has to increase in depth. When uh, Ezekiel in chapter 47 sees water coming under the threshold of the, of the temple, he sees it just dripping, just dripping, just dripping. Then it's ankle deep, then it's knee deep, and then it's waist deep, and then it's so deep you can't cross it. Look back five, 10 years, your understanding of the scripture and of the Lord that you worship should have a greater weight to it, a greater resiliency, a greater devotedness, a greater allegiance, and a greater depth of insight. Said another way, your love will abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Your insight has to increase in depth as so too does the love that you have, not only for God, but for some other people. We're not here with some academic pursuit of an ancient text. We're here to understand the Word of God and have a faith that without works would be totally dead, okay? So, so this is the distinctiveness they pick up on at these steps. Um, an ever-increasing revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, it'll take eternity to actually totally reveal who he is. Think about that. Have we even scratched the surface? Uh, we grow blind. I see this happen all the time. It, it, it's not a matter of if it's gonna happen, it's a matter of when it's gonna happen. And what is that? Sometimes people will fall away, and they'll fall away from church, and they go, I don't need to go to church. And then what happens six, nine, 12 months later, they've got some problems, they've got some issues, they've got some dryness, they've got some real apathy. And eventually, it finds its way into the weakest area of your life, be it financial, business, morality, it sneaks its way in there and all of a sudden, the absence of being exposed to the light and to the people of God and to the word of God leaves people wanting, spiritually anemic, in trouble, and listless. I've seen this happen time and time and time again. And sometimes, not always, sometimes the thing to do is to let them go and their depths increase in despair versus their de- depth of insight into the word of God. Careful. All right, so it is the role of a teacher or a preacher at these steps to show, to show people what is right in front of their eyes when they read the Bible. That's part of what a teacher and a preacher are supposed to do. They're supposed to take the word of God and expository, an expository sermon would be one who exposes something that's right there in front of you that you're not accustomed to seeing or haven't seen before. You say, Have, you, to teach or to preach on something and they look at it and they go, oh, I never saw that before. That's depth, that's a deeper, that's a deeper understanding. And there's so many layers of this, it's not funny, okay? We're gonna do that, I hope, today to reveal something, to expose something that's been there the whole time that for whatever reason you haven't seen it. It hasn't been taught properly, you haven't listened properly, or um, you, you haven't been in a place where you needed to understand it yet. It hasn't, it really hasn't been opened up to you. Um, or it's just um, you didn't have enough time to really meditate on it. You, you, your, your pursuit of understanding of the scripture is going to be uh, proportional to your understanding and depth of your relationship with Christ. If you just wanna give it a glance, I'm gonna do a devotion, I'm gonna read a verse and move on, or you are gonna meditate on it? You're gonna think about it. You're gonna pray that scripture into your life. That's where the depth comes from, okay? That's the role of a teacher and a preacher right there, to expose what's there and show you what's there that uh, previous to 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 the telling and teaching of the scripture, you maybe didn't see it. Okay, not just to do that for, that for revelation's sake, but that's a natural flow of what a teacher and a preacher should do. Should, a teacher and a preacher should increase in their understanding and knowledge of the scripture and share it with somebody that they go, okay, I never saw that before, or that ministered to me, or that's what I needed to hear. Because you didn't hear it before, you're gonna hear it now because the timing is such, you need to hear it now, okay? That's how it works, typically. That's the role of a teacher and a preacher. All right, the Pharisees, they're gonna come up in this, in this uh, little account here. The Pharisees, um, they're not all that far off, really. They believe in uh, resurrection, and they believe in angels, so they're, they're ahead of the Sadducees. They, they were tightwads, spiritually. They didn't, they didn't even go there. Um, the Pharisees, keep in mind now, they don't typically deny the fact that Jesus did a miracle, They're not saying he didn't do the miracle. Look closely. They're not saying he didn't do it. They're saying it was Beelzebub or it was the devil. They're saying it was uh, uh, misunderstood or that it shouldn't have been done on the Sabbath. They're not disagreeing with the fact the person's healed. Okay? So keep that in mind as we look through this passage. All right, John 9. Here we go. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? All right, when you're reading the Bible, slow it down, man. Just slow it down. I mean, you're looking for slow motion here. You're looking for, uh, let me speak to my uh, football fans here. You're looking for a review of the play in slow motion. You're looking for slow motion, slow down. Less is more. You don't have to read the whole New Testament every morning. One verse would be fine. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They want an explanation, right? All right, they see a guy who can't see. You teenagers, you're gonna, you go to school, you go to homeschool, you, whatever you go, you're gonna see people from time to time, you're gonna look at them and go, why are they the way they are? What happened that they're the way, they, the way they are? It could be a good way or a, a, a difficult way. Why is that person the way they are? We, I need an explanation. Help me understand that person by understanding their lot in life. They see a blind guy, they go, what happened here? What's, why is this guy blind? All right, I wanna crucify him over the question. It's, it's a halfway decent question, but it's missing the point. They wanna know why this guy's blind. Now, why do they want to know why he's blind? The same reason the Pharisees wanna know why he's blind. Because they wanna know from a doctrinal standpoint. They wanna know from an orthodox standpoint. They wanna know from a denominational standpoint. They wanna know from a scriptural standpoint why this guy's blind. Okay. That even in and of itself isn't the end of the world. I'd like to know what's going on in the world based on what the scripture has to say about it. I'm not going to get anybody's case about that, but they still miss the point. Jesus looks at him, and he doesn't he sees a guy who can't see, but he's not asking the question why he can't see. He's experiencing what the guy feels because he can't see. He's seeing a guy in anguish. He's seeing a guy who's alienated. He's seeing a guy who's lonely. He's seeing a guy who doesn't understand. He's seeing a guy who can't make his way through the crowds. He's seeing a guy who has to beg for a living, can't work. He sees a guy who's riddled with shame, not honor. He sees a guy who just feels like he's, no one understands him. Like, why isn't anybody asking about that? See, Jesus is looking at the guy and goes, why can't he see? Like, I don't want to know the reason why he can't see. Why can't he see? Why don't he just make him see today? See, nobody's seeing that. Now, to their credit, they had not seen him open the eyes of a blind man who was born blind at birth. But nonetheless, we don't have that luxury. When we look at someone whose lot in life is far less than ours, we're, we can't not simply just stop at asking the question, why are they in this situation? I mean, there are uh, tons of impoverished people out there who came up in horrible, horrible circumstances, raised in horrible homes with dysfunction and abuse and toxicity and, 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 uh, and they're just, their personalities and their conduct and their, their, their approach to life is just vile and angry and disgusting and they're dishonest and they're mean. So we can ask all day long, why is this person the way they are? And we get the answer but we're still no closer to a solution just knowing why they act the way they are. Why are they angry? Why are they depressed? Why are they confused? Why do they lash out? Why do certain things trigger them to certain behavior? Well, okay, we can better understand the person by knowing their origin and their family of origin, perhaps, but at the same time, do we ever look at it and go, how can that person actually be totally different? Regardless of the origination of their issue, even it be your spouse. There's certain aspects of your relationship with your spouse or, or uh, there's some people adopt children or they have foster children. That's a great example. I have a foster child and I don't understand. Well, I know they came from a less than ideal background. Does that explain why they are the way they are? Fine, that's good to know. But at the same time, Jesus looks at a blind man and wants to know how can he see? He doesn't accept the fact they always have to be the way that they are. We don't have to accept the fact that we're always going to have this issue in our life. We're always going to have this vice. We're always going to have this weakness. We're always going to be angry at some. We're always, whatever the case may be, he doesn't accept the status quo. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And you shouldn't either. We cannot, on one hand worship this God who can do any and everything he wants to do when he wants to do it. And then just accept everything the way that it is and it's never going to change. The two don't marry each other. They want to know what this guy's deal was that he's blind. His parents, is, it was his parents who, like? and that's another thing. You can't go through life always blaming somebody. I'll tell you, one of the most immature, infantile things you can do in life is walk around either complaining or blaming people for everything. Hey, he had just gotten through ministering to a woman caught in adultery. Don't you think it's still on their minds? They wanna blame that woman for everything, not the guy, just the woman. Listen to people who always tear other people down and never build anybody up. They're weak, they're empty, they're lost, and they're confused. Anybody that always tears someone else down has got a serious problem. Now you can ask all day long, why are they that way? Well, the answer is somebody messed them up. You don't have to have all the details, but ask yourself this question. How would they go forward not doing that anymore? Some people are so negative, so divisive, so blaming to everyone else. Jesus doesn't go to that. He doesn't do that. You see, what they wanted was a theological explanation. What they wanted was something to better understand what their belief system was. You take enough people and get them together and have enough subject to discuss, you'll end up with multiple denominations because nobody will ever truly agree on why things are the way they are unless they see it through a filter they've been given, some sort of orthodoxy, some sort of religion, some sort of acceptable practices, some sort of acceptable understanding of the scripture. As, and think about the audacity and the arrogance of that. As long as we're actually looking at something beyond the surface, look at the audacity. Look at the audacity of denominational perspectives on the scripture. Each one says they have the understanding of what it means by looking at it and explaining the world around them. Not all of them are right because they all disagree with one another on various issues. They can't all be right. It's impossible. That it, what, what we're really saying here is we've come to the conclusion and we don't really need any other discussion on the practice of of what it means, what this scripture means to explain life in this world. We've figured it out, and this is who we are now, and God bless you, have a good day. If you disagree, go go pick up with someone else. They'll agree with you. Someone out there will agree with you. Okay, to a certain extent, as long as you keep the core values of your faith the same, the the inerrancy of the word, the deity of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, okay, I get all of that, but listen. When you eat of the tree of knowledge, again and again and again, you end up looking at a blind man wanting a academic explanation of why he's blind. Though, while asking the question, you're blind to the very question you should be asking, what do we do so this guy can see? Go to your Bible studies and do all of that stuff that all of us are doing. There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever until, until the pursuit of the knowledge of understanding the Bible that's in your lap or on your phone keeps you from asking the real question is, how do I help this guy? How do I love this guy? What do I do for this guy? Because as soon as you divorce yourself from the actual action that you've learned in the scripture, you've actually become a Pharisee. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't studied that yet, it's not a good thing. Not most of the time anyway. Some of them had got, got it together. What they wanted was an explanation of their orthodoxy. They wanted an explanation and wanted the knowledge. I have a verse for you. For those of you who are gravitating too far towards the knowledge part of this thing without actually living out everyday life in truth, Your pursuit of an understanding is noble, but your absence of applying it to other people who are hurting or asking a different question is not. I'll speak on my own behalf. I have to be careful that my Christianity and my ministry don't get in the way of me being a Christian to other people in this world. Does anybody know who Catherine Hudson is? Not that you should. She's my neighbor, has been for four or five years. Dealing with cancer. Now, what's the appropriate question? Why is she sick? I got a better question. Am I loving my neighbor? First Corinthians eight and two but knowledge puffs up first corinthians eight two but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. The disciples ask the question because it's new and it's, it's the first it's the first three minutes of the first 15-minute quarter. It's not even close to halftime yet, and they don't really know, so they're asking a question. So I don't fault them for it. I would ask the same question. But we've got a little bit more water under the bridge, and we should be asking a different question at this point in time. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. I have knowledge that my neighbor's ill, We talk to each other when something goes wrong and I try to fix it. We have knowledge limited of what's going on in our life. Knowledge puffs up. What I know of my neighbor, and as I analyze what I've done to invest in my neighbor, I have far more knowledge than I do love. You see, to put it in terms of a sermon two weeks ago, I've walked the first mile. I'm aware. And if something happens, I'll pick up her pack and carry it. I realize that. But I have to ask myself this question. Have I come to the mile marker, one mile, mile marker in... Have I either put it down, forgotten about it, or waiting for some emergency to come up to help her, or am I picking up that pack and going the extra mile where I choose to do so, where I'm intentional about doing so? As long as we're getting on someone's case this morning, let's get on mine. I can't let my faith, my vocation, my calling, my job, whatever you want to call it, get in the way of my being a believer who has a faith, and that faith doesn't puff up It builds up. Number two, when we see something wrong, we inherently want to point out the fault. Adam, this is good, this is old. Like this is nothing new, okay? Adam did it. Genesis 3 and 12, the man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit. (laughs) I mean, okay. Every time you take your finger, whether you do it physically or verbally, or mentally, or spiritually, and you point it at somebody, this is really what you ought to do with it. The first sinless man said, my will be done. The second sinless man said, thy will be done. We need to be less about my and more about thy. So Jesus answered the question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now listen, some parents do sin. And it does affect their baby. Like fetal alcohol syndrome, okay? There's a great example of sin affecting the physical body of an infant. I guess there are other examples. This isn't one of them. Jesus tells us, no, this isn't what's going on here. So let's put that aside. That's not this occasion. It's not as though God is being punitive to this innocent baby just so he can show off later. That's not what's going on here. It's God positioning himself in a fallen world to be able to show his good works when the inevitability of in a fallen world something goes awry. A tragedy, a um, tragedy, birth defect, whatever. That's the point. The point is God's present to do something here that wasn't caused by the parents, that inevitably was gonna happen because of this dude, Adam, and his wife, Eve. That's what happens in a fallen world. And, and it's not something we like, but God is restorative and God is redemptive. All right, and now Jesus goes on to say, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Wherever darkness exists in this world, the I am, the I am, the Yahweh, the light of the world, will come. He'll go into that darkness under our behalf. All darkness is, is the absence of light. That's all it is. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. The darkness existed for the absence of light. So when light comes in your heart, and your mind, darkness is dispelled. It's not, it's not like they're going to cohabitate. No, light dispels darkness, and Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. What he's really saying, and I'm sure the guy's listening, is this guy lives in darkness, his, his, his physical, he doesn't have either the physical ability to process light with the cones and the rods and the colors in his eyes, his lens, his retina, cornea, whatever the case may be. I apologize to all ophthalmologists in the room who might think I'm totally crazy right now like I know what I'm talking about, but he lacks the capacity to process the light to see in simple terms He says, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground. It makes you wonder, did Jesus play baseball as a kid? <laughs> huh? I was in Nazareth last week. I saw no baseball fields. But at the same time, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. Say, what? All right, they're all wondering about what happened here. Why is this guy blind? And he's sending him down to the pool. He's got some mud. He's got to go working on The guy comes back and he can see. Huh. Wow. What do we make of this? Well, yet you, Lord, are our Father, Isaiah 64 and 8. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Jesus, being God, creator, present at creation, present in the garden, sees that the man to see is going to need maybe even eyes, maybe even. A retina, cornea, eyeball, I don't know. He's got, he's got to create what wasn't created properly. He's not gonna fix what was there. He's gonna create what isn't there. Because he's the potter, and all a potter needs to create anything is what? Clay. So he starts spitting on the ground, and he's got the proper ratio between spit and dust. Out of the dust, Adam was created. Adam actually means ground, Adama. adama. So here we go, (laughs) here we go. I know creation was a long time ago, but now we're gonna do this right here at the southern steps. We're gonna spit on the ground, we're gonna fashion something, we're gonna make pottery going on here, we're gonna put on the guy's eyes, and somewhere between here and the Pool of Siloam, which is about 130 yards downhill. And the guy's gonna go down there and wash it off, and he's gonna have new eyeballs. I wonder what color his eyes were. I bet they were brown. I saw a lot of beautiful brown eyes this past week. Notice this, he's unrecognizable. And his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, is this the same guy who used to sit and beg? Is this the same dude? Some claimed that he was, others said no, he he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I I am the man, that's me, that's me. You see, someone said, I don't know who it was, Just waxing poetically, it sounded good. Windows are the eyes of the soul. Sounds good. Guys, repeat that every now and again and say something you're not expected to say and you'll start to get this reputation for being eloquent and romantic. and It'll help you. Or it'll hurt you if you don't do it right. So you gotta do it right. Eyes are the window into the soul. Uh, have you ever seen a blind person take off their sunglasses? you ever seen a person without eyes? Can you imagine how unrecognizable and how drastically different that person would look if all of a sudden they had eyes with whites of their eyes and color in their eyes and speckles of flakes of color in their eyes? It's, it's like the eyes, man. The eyes say it all. We look into a person's eyes when we truly want to communicate with them. We look away from a person's eyes when we truly want to avoid them. The eyes tell a lot. Change this look. So let me ask you a question. Got a new year coming up. Is this gonna be a year where we simply... Oh, what can we do? There's a lot of things we could do. Let's think of some things that we could do. We'll put them on paper. We'll swear an allegiance to get them done. We'll have boxes that are blank, and we want to put checks in there, and we want to do it as much as possible. So we get our Bible reading plan. Nothing wrong with that. I want to read through the Bible in a year. Perfect, beautiful. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So okay. So uh, Valentine's Day, if you're still in the game, hey, you're looking good. You get to Easter and you're still on the Bible reading plan? You're looking unusual. We get to the 4th of July and you're knocking out that Bible. You've got to get a new pen. You've made so many checks. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Should you be reading the Bible all the way through? (sighs) Absolutely. Why? So you no longer need an explanation of why people are the way that they are you're more concerned, you're more enamored, you're more infatuated, you're more obsessed, you're more compulsive about what it is you can do to help them or how to pray for them despite the origination of their issues and your own for that matter, we start to feel what they feel. We start to understand them, not just the word. We start to understand those that we love, that we have difficulty relating to in certain areas, than we do how they should act in light of the word. Oh, that's where you're really in trouble. I've been reading the word lately, and you're not very scriptural. Well, neither are you, by the way, by saying that. <laughs> Never mind that. Are we so, so precisely and acutely interested in getting our orthodoxy all jot and tittles and eyes crossed, eyes dotted and T's crossed, or are we? Doing that, which is, I guess, good, but not at the expense of love. Don't be blind to the blind guy. That's the point. Don't be blind to the blind guy. Don't be blind to your neighbor. I tell you, as our knowledge of the Scripture, as our insight and depth of understanding of Christ increases, Certain questions come up in our heart and mind that wouldn't have come up had we not been in the scripture and we can't neglect those questions that pop up. When the snowstorm comes and go, I wonder, we got a storm coming. Is there anything I need to do with my neighbors to get the snow off their porch, off their windshield? Do they need medicine? Do they need a prescription fulfilled? Do they have meals? Do they have heat? See, a greater understanding I have of the scripture is going to prompt questions, not of why in the world can't they get their son in law to come over and get the snow off their windshield? No, that doesn't even come up. As I understand the scripture in the New Testament, and that that knowledge increases in depth, I start asking the question how am I going to help this woman? What am I going to do here? What needs to be done? Why don't I stop blaming start helping? This is the crux of what's going on here, the teaching steps, the teaching steps. And what's he teaching, the scripture? Yeah, I guess, seems like he is. Hadn't even been written yet, and what he's teaching is not necessarily what they're gonna write, that's not gonna happen for years. What he's teaching is what to do with what he's saying. The word became Flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Faith without works is dead. At one point in time, you were blind. You were. You were spiritually blind. Who helped you the most? where the people that walk up to you and thought to themselves, why is this guy blind? Why doesn't he see Christ? Didn't his parents take him to church? Why is he blind? Why is he that way? They could have looked at me and said, why is that guy drunk? Why is he so loud? Why Why is he just his life a mess? Didn't they ever really teach that kid anything about Jesus? Well, no, they didn't. But the origin of my problem, I didn't need people asking me that. I already knew that. What I needed was that lady with that huge purse who after the service got out a post-it note, told me I wasn't leaving the building until she had my name. And she took that post-it note and wrote down Gary Hewins. Wrote down the date that I accepted Christ at the altar of that church. and Socked that thing deep down in about three foot of cosmetics and Who knows what else? <laughs> but I can tell you, based on the fact I'm standing here today, that post-it note didn't stay at the bottom of her, po- of her purse. She wasn't asking the question why I was such a loser. She was asking, how do I pray that this kid be a winner? She wasn't blaming me for rejecting Christ and being a blasphemer, cursing his name, using his name in vain. Nobody was blaming me. Nobody was asking, what happened to this guy? she grabbed the horns on the altar and probably never let go. (laughs) And brought this brash, arrogant believer. I've been a believer for 45 minutes. I've been born again for 45 minutes. And one Post-It note, one question of how I can pray for you, which no one had ever done for me in my whole entire life caused me to pull off 285 at an exit I never pull off at and sob like a baby for 30 minutes. She saw a blind guy and could care less why I was blind. Didn't blame me or point a finger at me or judge me or criticize me in any way, shape, or form. She did what God's ministry had told her to do. She got a post-it note and a cheap big pen and wrote my name down and grabbed the horns of the altar and prayed for the light wherever there was darkness. Let's have our youth band come up here. I love our doctrine. I love the scripture. I like seminary. I like sitting around with people all over the world and all these people are gonna be these pastors and all of this stuff. I love, I love sitting around with all the South Koreans in my RTS master's program who wanted to get ordained, all the youth ministers from South Korea and I'm the old fogey, tall guy in the back who didn't agree with anything they had to say. I loved every conversation I had but every one of them were irrelevant until the people in the room get their diploma, leave with their master's degree, put it in the the drawer where it belongs and go out there and start loving people. Since you've gotten the light, since you've received the light, do people no longer recognize you? Do they have a question, is that the same person? They don't look the same. They don't sound the same. I don't know, is that the same person? That's the question we should be asking. Is that the same person? With that same countenance. I hadn't seen that smile before. I feel like I can see down into their soul now. Look at their eyes, they're clear, there's no toxins. The relationships aren't riddled with toxicity. I don't recognize that person anymore. Now we're getting somewhere. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Let's ponder that for a moment, shall we?